Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You say, Who touched me? Uh, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. The setting for this story, the gospel reading that we've just read, is Jesus returning from the east side of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee. He arrives on the west side and immediately encounters a large crowd pressing in on him. The story begins with a large crowd, a great crowd, pressing in on him. He later sends them away. Then he sends the mourners away, and this scene ends in a very intimate setting with only Jesus, the little girl, her parents, and his three closest disciples. The action of this narrative really begins with an urgent plea for a dying child. Now, those of you who uh, like to look at the other Gospels and compare, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's a much shorter version than in Luke or Mark. 
Um, it's really a summary, and in that one, uh, Jairus says that his daughter has just died. Uh, there's not a contradiction here. It's just a, it's just a summary. This, uh, this girl was um, at the point of death, as the gospel of Mark says, or dying, as Luke's gospel uh, accounts. Now, those of you who are thinking now of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm, I'm not dead yet. There is a difference between uh, dead and dying, but there's not a contradiction here in the stories. Matthew is just compressing the narrative into a summary. Things are set in motion as Jesus goes with Jairus and the crowd joins with them. Uh, but then there's an unexpected interruption. Who touched my garment? This sets in the story within the story of the woman and her uh, problems that she had suffered from 12 years. And then comes the sad news, uh, really maybe the climax of this story, uh, the news that Jairus' daughter has died. Your daughter is already dead. And then that sets up the key message of this story. Faith over fear. Do not fear. Only believe. What I'd like to do in our time this morning, there's a lot here to unpack. And, and, and really for, for anyone who has uh, suffered a prolonged illness or had a child who was seriously ill, uh, you can really identify with the characters in this story. Uh, but what I'd like to do is focus our attention to sort of the pivot point in this narrative. When Jesus is confronted with competing demands, a dying girl and a, and a woman who has been ill for 12 years. I think many of us can also identify with that. When we talk about the busyness of our lives, we're often talking about competing demands for our time and resources. If we just had one thing to do after the other, our days would be full, but not particularly stressful. What happens, though, is that we have competing demands for our time and our resources, and we have to make these difficult decisions. Do I do this or do I do that? Do I do this first? What do I do first? How do I prioritize? Oftentimes it comes down to what gets done and what actually never gets done. These are the things that stress us out and cause us to say, I'm busy. Jesus experienced that as well. But let's look at what he did. Now, the setting here is, is medical. You've got two patients, really. You've got a dying girl, and you've got a chronically ill woman. And so, uh, forgive me, those of you who are not medical, but this really resonates with me. This is what we call, in, in, in medical terms, triage. Triage is assigning degrees of urgency to wounded or ill patients. And this is a classic, classic triage setting. Uh, you've got to decide who goes first. All lives are equal, of equal value, but you've got to decide, you know, what's your priority? Who do you treat first? Now, my wife Kim and I did our medical training back before we had an emergency medicine training program. So that means that uh, all of us residents handle the emergencies ourselves. My wife is an obstetrician gynecologist, so she took care of those emergencies with her team. And I was an internal medicine specialist, so I took care of the medical emergencies. Now, on the medical side, we had three levels of care at the Ben Taub Hospital in Houston, Texas. If you were really, really sick, I mean, I'm talking about heart attack, shock, 
respiratory failure, you went to the shock room where you, know, you got emergency care, you know, just like you see on TV. If you were really sick but not quite that bad, you were called a medical check and you went right back to the, to the uh, medical emergency room and you were seen right away, usually by a resident or an intern. Now, if you had a, a chronic condition that really didn't require urgent care, you were sent to what we called the team hall. And there you were probably going to wait several hours and eventually be seen either by a medical student or by an intern at the end of his or her shift. So in terms of uh, Ben Taub triage, the little girl is a shock room patient. The woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years would be a team hall. You know, if it hasn't killed her in the last 12 years, she's probably going to be okay for a few more hours. Triage also sometimes means making difficult decisions where you have limited resources and greater demands. Uh, when Kim and I uh, were serving as medical missionaries in Kenya, we would both take call together. She would handle the op obstetric and, and gynecologic emergencies, and, and I would handle um, the, the medical and the pediatric uh, cases. Uh, we had two babies at home uh, in those days, and so we couldn't both be in the hospital at the same time. So if it happened that, for example, I was in the hospital seeing a, a medical emergency and she got called about an obstetrical emergency, she'd call me up, we'd briefly talk and decide which patient uh, was the sickest, and then we'd, we'd make the swap if needed. And uh, sometimes our, our house was about a five-minute walk if you were walking briskly from the hospital, and so we'd oftentimes literally pass each other uh, in the night. So sometimes triage means making difficult decisions, and Jesus was faced with that decision as well. In terms of acuity, definitely the little girl wins out. Now, mentioned all lives are of equal value, but we tend to favor in medicine the younger patient over, over the older, just on the logic that there's more years of life, what we sometimes call quality-adjusted life years, uh, to be gained. Um, in this case, uh, there's also the sense of first come, first serve, right? Jairus uh, showed up first. This woman came on later. And then maybe a, a distant fourth status. This is the only daughter of the synagogue ruler, a VIP, versus an unknown and impoverished woman. Jesus makes a decision in this case that's completely opposite to good medical triage. He stops to attend to the need of the woman. As R.T. France puts it, by attending to this statusless woman who is at the bottom of the honor scale, Jesus breaks his prior commitment to help the daughter of someone at the top of the honor scale. This profound reversal of dignity is meant to shock and thus to liberate. So if Jesus is not practicing good medical triage here, what is he doing? Well, he's doing at least three things. The first is he's acknowledging this woman's faith. Think about it. In the span of just a few seconds, this woman has experienced shame and desperation, hope, faith, joy, and now fear and trembling. Jesus recognizes her spiritual and her emotional drama, not trauma, but drama, as well as her physical healing. And in Jesus' eyes, her experience of healing would not be complete without his acknowledgement and his blessing. 
Jesus is acknowledging her faith. The second thing Jesus is doing is he's exalting the humble. Now, this is sort of baked into his DNA, both in his divine nature and his human nature. You think about his mother Mary when she received the news from the angel Gabriel that she was to give birth to the Son of God. She breaks forth in song. We also oftentimes call that the Magnificat, recorded in Luke chapter 1. Magnificat from a Latin word that uh, means magnified. It begins, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. It goes on to say, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In a way, this sequence, this narrative is enacting uh, Mary's song. Jesus stops for the humble woman and exalts her, and he leaves Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and his daughter, uh, hungry for the time. A few years back when I was serving as director of the Arkansas Department of Health, I invited a friend of mine, uh, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, to come to give a series of talks and high-level meetings in our state. Uh, uh, Dr. Adams came and, and began with a, a presentation at our uh, Arkansas Department of Health Public Health Grand Rounds. And um, Jerome is, is a wonderful speaker, but he, he does like to speak. And so we had left what we thought was ample time for him to get from that venue to the next, uh, but he sort of took that time up, um, answering questions and interacting with people. So we were a little bit pressed for time, and as we were whisking him down the hall of the Arkansas Department of Health, we passed by... Uh, an older woman who is one of our janitorial staff. Well, Jerome stops abruptly. He introduces himself to the woman, and he strikes up a conversation while his entourage of, of dignitaries are, are left standing there waiting for him. And then we carried on. That was a powerful message. It told us a lot about how the U.S. Surgeon General viewed people and how he conceived of his role. This is what Jesus does. He exalts the humble. The third thing that Jesus does in this sequence is he enacts a theology of abundance. Now, sorry, that, that hit you as a heavy theological term. He enacts a theology of abundance he rejects the idea of either or, either the dying girl or the chronically ill woman, and he embraces a both and mentality. He's going to do right for both of them, and he's going to do it in a way that brings glory uh, to God. A theology of abundance, a theology of scarcity, which the world teaches us over and over is that there's not enough resources, there's not enough time, there's not enough information to make a good decision and not enough control. The theology of abundance with the, which the scripture teaches is the good news of the gospel that in Christ there's enough for all. He came to give life and to give it, and to give it in abundance. Uh, my father um, was a good but an extravagant man. Now he never spent or gave away more than he had. Uh, but he really pushed the limits sometimes. Um, 
he came to visit us in Kenya, and, and, and he met one of the security guards at the hospital, and he decided to buy him a small farm so that he and his family would have some place to live and to support themselves after he eventually retired from the hospital. Another time, he tipped someone $2,000 just because he thought they had provided excellent service. This was crazy stuff. Repeatedly, my father offended my more frugal sens sensitivities. But I learned a powerful lesson about, about God's generous heart, the heart of our Heavenly Father. God's love and grace is like that, extravagantly generous. He gives us more than we need, more than we deserve, and more than we can imagine. Uh, Walter Brugman puts it this way in his article, The Liturgy of Abundance, The Myth of Scarcity. The gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated in the magnificent, inexplicable love of a God who loved the world into generous being. A theology of abundance. So what are the implications of this story for us? Well, first... Take time to look beyond the obvious. We get busy. Things are moving and shaking. We need to stop and ask ourselves some hard questions. What is really going on in this situation at a spiritual level? We hear all sorts of stuff being said, but what is it that's not being said? Where are the hidden pain and the seeds of faith? Who needs my attention the most? in this particular situation. And then finally, do I need to stop or slow down for a bit in order to listen, perceive what God is doing in this situation? Take time to look beyond the obvious. Don't just press on with the crowd. Second, value people the way God does. Jesus died for people, not for programs, principles, or policies. If you think about it, there's only two things on this earth that are going to last forever. People and God's word. Everything else will pass away. All this stuff that distracts us, that entices us, it will pass away. Our goals, our plans, our aspirations, those will all pass away. All the things that we like to argue about, the things that divide us, those too will pass away. Only people and God's word will remain. All people bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, and for this reason, all of us are precious in his sight. People are not the means to an end. They are the end themselves. Our value is not in our usefulness. By corollary, other people's value is not in their usefulness to us. The organizations that we create, including this parish, the corporations we form, the governments we bring into existence should be for the sake of people, not the other way around. Getting closer to home, children do not exist just to satisfy their parents' emotional needs or displaced desires for success. On the other hand, parents don't exist just to provide for their children's needs. We're here to love each other, to honor each other, to encourage each other, and to spur one another on in our love for God. Finally, implication number three, trust in the abundance of God. 
When we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, we're expressing our trust in his sufficiency. Like the Israelites in the wilderness who received each day all that they needed, no more, no less, we also express our trust in God's sufficiency to give us this day our daily bread. Again, Brugman says, in 2 Corinthians 8, which was one of our readings, Paul directs a stewardship campaign for the early church and presents Jesus as the new economist. Though Jesus was rich, Paul says, yet for your sakes he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. We say it takes money to make money. Paul says it takes poverty to produce abundance. Jesus gave himself to enrich others, and we should do the same. Our abundance and the poverty of others need to be brought into a new balance. Paul ends his stewardship letter by quoting Exodus 16. And the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. This citation is from the story of the manna that transformed the wilderness into abundancy. The manna in the wilderness points to Jesus, the bread of life, the bread come down from heaven. In his body and in his blood, he provide us, provides us all that we need for life and godliness. The bread that we share in communion should remind us not only of his body broken for us, but should also remind us of the times where he broke bread, prayed, and, uh, and fed the multitudes. We have enough because he is enough, enough to satisfy our deepest needs and enough to share. Amen.